some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theatre at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, there is another recall campaign against a DC council member who is accused of being soft on crime. NBC4's Mark Seagraves is going to tell us about it. We're also going to talk about the wild new security measures going up in a bunch of local stores that have been hit by theft. Plus oysters. Yes, they are a regional delicacy, whether you know it or not. CityCast's Ash Durbin is going to explain the record catch in the Chesapeake. Today is Friday, February 23rd. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Hey, Ash. Hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, Mark. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. So we talked last week about the uh, recall campaign against Charles Allen, who's a DC councilman from Ward 6, which is sort of centered on Capitol Hill. Another recall campaign with the same sort of reasoning dropped this week against Brianne Nadeau, who represents Ward 1 in the sort of uh, central part of DC. Tell me about it. Who's behind it? What's their complaint against her? Yeah, so crime is the one word answer to what's motivating these residents who are doing this. These are two very different recall efforts between Charles Allen and Brianne Doe for the simple reason of kind of the level of organization. You, you're seeing a really well-oiled machine in Ward 6, not surprising, you know, a lot of people who live in Ward 6 near Capitol Hill, you know, are in this business and they know their way around petitions and, and filings and whatnot and fundraising. The effort against Nadeau is far more grassroots and not quite as well organized as, as of yet. One of the people who's on the petition um, paperwork isn't even a Ward 1 resident. Uh, so I think it's one Ward 1 resident and then, and then a neighboring resident. And their issue, when I talked to one of them, said, look, we don't feel heard. That was the quote to me. We don't feel heard by Councilmember Nadeau when it comes to crime. And of course, crime is the number one issue in Washington, D.C. for just about everybody right now. And so they filed this paperwork. We'll have to see if they have the same level of success in both fundraising and convincing the Board of Elections uh, to, to put this question to the voters as they go forward. So they're uh, several weeks behind the Allen campaign in, in that they just submitted their paperwork. They have yet to have a hearing before the Board of Elections. That would have to happen before any petitions would be authorized and issued. The Allen campaign is through that process. They have their petitions. They're holding meetings. They're organizing. They're getting volunteers. And they're getting out there to, to try to gather the petitions, the, the requisite signatures to put this before the voters. Can we back up a bit? I mean, crime is such a perplexing issue because I think even like great criminologists don't have a whole lot of idea about what policy causes crime to go up or go down. People still disagree about why it went down so fast in the 90s. But what, according to the people who want to recall her, what are 
Councilmember Nadeau's sins. Just not being responsive enough to the crisis that they see. And to me, what this says, these two recall efforts, is that who's controlling the narrative? Who's winning the battle of the narrative on crime? And, you know, you hear Mayor Bowser use this term that I absolutely hate as a journalist, and that's the ecosystem of the criminal justice system. But what she's referring to is that there are a lot of individual players in the criminal justice system, from the police to the legislators to the courts to the prosecutors, and none of them work really in the same arena because of the federal dynamic that is unique to Washington, D.C. And so everybody's trying to control the narrative that best suits their position, right? The U.S. attorney is far more aggressive these days in speaking to the press and to the public than past U.S. attorneys in D.C. because he's coming under fire. Courts the same, certainly the council and the mayor. And what it says to me is that the D.C. council is losing this narrative. And that began back under Charles Allen and the overall crime bill that Congress and even President Biden and Democrats voted to block. And it was because the narrative on that was it's soft on crime. And Charles Allen and Phil Mendelson lost control of that narrative. Phil Mendelson went before Congress and said there's not a crime crisis. And that just enraged residents who were living in the midst of a crime crisis. And since then, and you had the police union, Greg Pemberton, who's been very successful again, again, at pointing the finger at the D.C. Council. And now this is what we're seeing as a result. You said this is more grassroots than the Ward 6 one? Like, who exactly is filing this? The woman who is a a business owner who says that this is hurting her business, and then another gentleman who told me he doesn't live in Ward 1. They both kind of, you know, when they rolled this out, you know, one of the things that kind of spoke to me is like, there were all these rumors about this, you know, that this was percolating, that this was coming. And they had spoken to some reporters on background and whatnot. But when they launched and they filed, they just weren't ready to go out and talk to reporters. And they kind of lost a little bit of the narrative in that because Brandado did, you know, she did interviews. She put out a statement, the statement that Tommy Wells, former council member, put out who's leading the effort to on Charles Allen's defense on this, you know, Nadeau's statement kind of addressed head on, like, you know, I do hear you is what she said. You know, I am trying to focus on crime where Allen through Tommy Wells is saying, well, you know, doing a recall effort is, is an affront to home rule because they question really who's putting money into this. You know, are these really Ward 6 residents behind this or is it, you know, a broader campaign that may even extend outside of Washington, D.C.? Um uh, and whatnot. And and so, you know, at least for Nadeau, she seems to be really addressing the issue, which is crime that residents say is their biggest issue. And so where this goes from here, you know, we'll have to see if they have the same success in, in raising money and convincing the Board of Elections, more importantly, that they have a worthy effort to issue petitions. I think that on the policy side, you know, so much of this goes back to 2020 and the reforms that were passed then that were at the time felt urgent and very popular. And as you say, the narrative has kind of turned against them. And these reforms, you know, about neck holds and stuff are being blamed by the police union, by others for crime going up. I don't know if that's true. I mean, other cities that passed the reforms have had crime go down. So uh, I'm not sure how much you can connect them. But I think your point is so right on about the you know core of it is that feeling of not being 
heard. But in 2020, people were saying like, hey, listen, if we take money from the like police state and put it in the welfare state, it is a more humane and better and ultimately more effective way of fighting crime, which, you know, maybe is right, maybe is wrong, but it's like a good, you know, is a decent argument. I think somehow people got the message, you know, via social media, not through any fault of council members, that like anybody who worries about crime or complains about crime is a Karen and bad. And that's, I think, what we're reacting to. So it's a weird thing where like people seem to be blaming some of these council members for a kind of a vibe they're picking up around town and on social media. And maybe the council members deserve it. Maybe they don't. But I guess we're going to find out. Yeah. And I look, you take the credit or blame for whatever happens on your watch when you're an elected official, when you're in chief of police, you know, when you're in, in, in any of these president of the United States. And, you know, I, I've been covering crime in Washington, D.C. for more than 25 years. And I like to compare crime and the economy. Again, you get the credit when it's good on your watch, you get the blame when it's bad on your watch, if you're the elected leaders or the chief of police at that time or the president. But there's very little that you can do in the short term to impact either the economy or crime. And just the sense, I mean, you know, as a D.C. resident, it pains me when I hear my friends from the suburbs tell me they're afraid to come into the city, you know, that they don't want to go to a show in the city because of the fear of crime. And that's real. You know, perception is reality. And that's what these lawmakers are millions of dollars riding on that perception. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is at a time when Bowser is trying to draw attention to getting people to come back and to go to these local restaurants and, and neighborhood restaurants and and boost the economy in any way she can. This is the issue that will define these lawmakers right now in D.C. So we have elections like coming up June and November. Are these recalls part of this? No. Is that part of the election? How, do, how does it work? They did not make the cutoff. They did not make the, the Charles Allen campaign, did not make the deadline. So if they are successful in getting their enough signatures to put this to a vote, it will not appear on the June primary ballot. They would have to hold a special election for that. I have not asked how much that's going to cost, but obviously that would be uh, a significant cost just financially. Uh, to to the taxpayers of D.C. It's unclear to me, uh, and I've asked this question, if the timeline for the NADO recall, you know, if, if they would hold, if they could get their signatures and get approved, get ballots, get signatures, get the signature count in time and have a special election in Ward 6 and Ward 1 on the same day, or, or those would actually be on separate calendars as well. But neither of these would be, uh, have, have enough time to get on the June uh, primary ballot. And just to be clear, 50 years of home rule, there has never been a successful recall. For a council member, as far as anybody that I have asked, they haven't gotten, I don't even think, to the point of getting it to a ballot. Yep. This is new territory for a lot of us. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on-site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one and two bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. 
Visit thearboratttacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So one of the things that anyone who's who's written about the kind of current situation with crime in D.C., I'm sure you have had this experience, the Bowser administration, the city government in general, is very eager to point out that, like, you know, is it still a crisis since our numbers are kind of tracking down in the, compared to the first quarter of last year? There's a kind of a tendency to, to like, litigate the uh, like present tense right. and stuff. You know, one of the things that is maybe like a reminder of it is that whenever you go into stores now or when you go to a lot of stores now, you see these, you know, big new security apparatuses. And our friend of CityCast, Mimi Montgomery, had a piece in Axios about all of the different you know, stores asking for receipts, stores with gates where you have to scan your receipt in order to leave. You know, I always find this so you know, infuriating when you've just, you've just paid a cashier and then someone else, you know, I don't even know if they're going to look at what's in your cart, but they check it and stuff. But it's sort of a you know, for anyone who goes through that, you know, it's either, I mean, even if it doesn't wind up being a thing where someone's going to give you a hard time, it's a thing that sort of reminds you, oh, this is where we are right now as a society. Sure. You know, you're looking at, you know, your deodorant and aftershave or whatever is in behind a locked case, you know, at, at CVS or something. That's why I've stopped buying deodorant. Well, we appreciate that, Michael. <laughs> I think we might want to have another show on that. But, you know, here here's the thing that you have to look at. I mean, what does it say to the communities? Because I, you have some stores that are doing this in some communities where they will say crime is higher at that location than it is in, a, in another location. But, you know, I don't think Safeway and Giant are doing these things in their, you know, Chevy Chase DC location. And so that sends a message, right, to that community that whatever it is, you know, it, but it's not a reinforcing, powerful, uplifting message that, you know, it's hard enough. They live in food deserts to begin with. And now, you know, they have to go through the security protocol um, that their neighbors on the other side of the river don't have to go through. Have you been um, have you been scanned leaving a Walgreens or a, a Safeway or Giant? I have not. But I, when I read about it, you know, I think it's it's worthy of discussion. You know, how are you treating customers differently on, on one side of the river than, the, than on the other side of the river? And I get that crime is higher. And if the businesses, well, then my other option is just to close and leave this neighborhood, you know, with one less resource, as you've seen some stores doing, you know, we've seen, I think you have one corner downtown where three of the four corners, the retail establishments have recently left. So it is a sign of our times and with the crime legislation that NATO has, one of the things in there is extending the moratorium on enforcing the requirement that businesses take cash. Um, because they equate that with a risk of, of more crime. So we had one of your colleagues on to talk about the crazy story of the Walgreens in Chinatown, where it had been armed, robbed eight times, and then now they've indicted one of the managers. I believe there's been a second arrest now. Exactly. That's what right. I was going to say, that there's been a second arrest. 
I don't know. I mean, he was still armed and he was still robbing, but it was all kind of a pantomime. So maybe it's a little less scary now that we know the details. I mean, I know when you talk about the crime stats looking like they're down, you know, crime stats are like TV ratings. We like to cherry pick the ones that reflect best for us. And so if it means like rather than looking back at the whole year of crime, let's just look at the last couple of months. You know, they like to do that because it usually is more favorable than looking at it at a 12 month span. I wonder because like a lot of these cases are like people going to CVS's throughout Chevy Chase and like taking beauty products and like tossing them in a trash bag and getting out of there. Like, I don't know if a guy, some minimum wage guy at the front checking receipts is really an answer to that. You know, if like that type of prime is the big problem, it feels like these solutions are maybe just getting like catching someone who's stealing, you know, something a little bit on the bottom of their cart or, you know, that you toss the bag of seltzer on the bottom and like try to sneak out. It's like, doesn't really sound like the issue generally, or it doesn't sound like the solution maybe. You know, one would have to think, you know, you have these huge chains like, you know, Costco and whatnot that have been doing it for years. I would assume because they're doing it, it's effective, but that's maybe a dumb assumption on, on, on my part. Part of it is, you know, they want to be seen as doing something, yeah. right? You want to try to make your employees and customers feel safe. And, right. and we see a lot of that, you know, people throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And that's the common denominator of the retail and the political item, which is that said so you don't know if it's effective to have someone at the front desk sort of checking receipts when you, you might have someone running out of there with a trash bag full of goods uh, and, and is going to just bowl over them. But effective means a lot of things. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's not effective against that. But it's an effect. If it's effective at making your customers feel safer and the sort of people respond to the kind of security theater. Yeah. Maybe that has its own virtue. And maybe if a couple of these council members had sort of engaged in a little bit more of that, it might not have had that much effect on crime. But maybe they would. It would have had a little bit more effect on their political prospects. So they wouldn't have to be dealing with the recall campaign. I don't know. Totally. All right. So, Ash, you flagged this this week. It's been a, uh, I guess, Maryland had its second record high year for wild oysters. What are wild oysters? Why are they having a record year? And uh, why should Seagraves and me care? Yeah. So shout out to Kayla's article on the website. So both Virginia and Maryland are having record years for oysters. I didn't know about this, but I guess pollution, overharvesting, and like some disease in the 80s caused oyster numbers to drop heavily. And then, you know, COVID happened, people weren't eating oysters as much, and I guess that allowed some recuperation maybe, but it looks like the numbers are back up. There's been a lot of efforts to like replant oysters. They've been recycling oyster shells, which is crazy to me, but yeah, it looks like it's time to get back to eating oysters this summer, man. Seagraves, do you eat oysters? I do. I'll tell you, I will only eat raw oysters. I don't like cooked oysters, but I only eat steamed clams. I won't eat raw clams for what that's worth. But look, Fair. I will say I'm a registered DC voter. I pay my income taxes in Washington, DC, but I own a home on the Chesapeake Bay, on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay. And I have a, I have Ooh. friends and neighbors who are watermen. And oysters are vitally important. This is tremendously great news, far beyond for people who like to slather oysters in horseradish and slurp them down with a cold beer because oysters are vitally important to the health of the Chesapeake Bay. They are the actual filters. They are the mechanism that filter the silt and pollution out of the water 
and are what are at the very basis of a healthy ecosystem in the in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and so this is really, really positive news. And it comes on the heels of last year, the Maryland blue crab population had gone up after a decline. And so that is another uh, indicator of the health of the Chesapeake Bay. And whether you eat seafood or crabs or shellfish or not, you should be happy that these two species are seeing a, a growth in their population because it is it is absolutely great news for the health of the Chesapeake Bay. So I'm planning to eat my oysters by driving out to Mark's place on the Chesapeake. But if I wanted to stay in town, where could I get some, Ash? Yeah. So Rappahannock Oyster Bar in the Wharf got a shout from Kayla. I think Hank's Oyster Bar in DuPont Circle might be the most famous one. It's right there in the name. Yep. They have their own oysters that they grow at a local farm called the Salty Wolf, which I would very much like to try. Then in Noma, we have King Street Oyster Bar, $1 happy hour oysters, which is a good deal for someone like me. (laughs) My personal shouts, I'm in Tacoma Park. Motorcat also has late night happy hour, $1 oysters. Uh, That spot just opened and they have great cocktails. But my big shout, if I can give a quick shout to something a little bit more out the way, is Mike's Crab House in Riva, Maryland. When I lived in Capitol Hill, it was like a 30-minute drive from my house. And it blew me away because like once I got out there, I was like, am I fully on the eastern shore right now like it was like feeling like i was on a beach getaway there's an old guy playing jimmy buffett covers and then like you're back in the district in like 20 minutes it was crazy and even though it's called crab house you're not going to get shunned for asking for oysters oh no they are big on the oysters there too all right we should road trip out sometime well, I, I would urge you all to drive a little bit further south and come on down to Calvert County. And I'll tell you a lot of the great things about going to the places that you talked about, like Mike's, and, and, and you get to some of these crab places. And, you know, these are family owned businesses and you can see the process. You know, you talked about the oyster beds. Uh, you know, you can see this firsthand. You can take your kids and they can walk around. And these, these watermen who then, you know, a lot of them sell their, their product there, they are happy to show you around. And it's, it's a real lesson. It's a real part of our history and our culture. And so it's important on a lot of levels. Amen. Hey, Mark, Ash, thank you guys for being here. Thanks, Mike. Michael, thank you for having me. It's always a joy. Thanks. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our senior executive producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our senior producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter editor is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Ash Durbin. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, tell the crowd about it next time you go out for crabs. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye.